I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmine Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, we'll be featuring Muna Sabhani, a cognitive neuroscientist, researcher, and author with over 15 years of experience. You can find her book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Mysteries of the Universe. So welcome to the show, Muna. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So Mona, just to kick it off, uh, I loved your book and was so fascinated by what you shared. And I'm wondering, you know, in your book, you say the old me would have hated the new me. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what I really mean by that is I went through a complete, I mean, in my mind, a complete transformation of, you know, my worldview, my identity, And so those things really, to me, comprise your core self or part of it, you know, at least your mind's perspective of what your core self is. And so, you know, undergoing such a complete transformation like that, um, like I just felt like a completely new person and what, what it, to be more specific, the old me was the, I mean, I'm still a, a neuroscientist, but it was the, the old personality that, uh, believed, you know, 100% in only uh, scientific materialism, which uh, is, you know, just believing that the world is made of matter and um, everything can be broken down into particles and atoms and, um, you know, reductionism, just everything can be reduced and studied and it's all comprised of matter. So only believing in that, which in my mind, I conflated with science. <laughs> um <laughs> And just, yeah, so that, that was all I believed in. You know, I didn't believe in religion. I didn't believe in spirituality. I actually hate, was very um, aggressively anti all of those things because in my mind, they were anti-science and anti-rationality. And that's just kind of the, um, that's kind of the environment um, 
of science um, in some ways. So that was old me. And, you know, as I, I, I just had these life experiences that I couldn't explain with that worldview. Um, I couldn't reconcile them and it caused a crisis and sparked the transformation that then ensued. And um, the new me is, uh, yeah, somebody who has space for both science and spirituality. And so, you know, in the end, I ultimately was able to reconcile the two. It was a very, very long, arduous journey, but ultimately, um, you know, in my mind, I was able to pull them together. And that's who I consider the new me, someone who can, who can do that. I love that. Yeah. And why did you decide to study neuroscience? What was kind of the the reason for that um, at a younger age? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, one thing is that I always found it really interesting to just observe people's behavior. And I was interested in why certain people behaved in certain ways or just the way, the way that everyone is so different from each other really fascinated me, you know, just how some people could easily mingle in groups and others were just, <laughs> you know, so, um, so shy, um, or, or how I, I noticed even in myself, you know, I could get along really easily with some people and then with other people, the dynamic would just be off and I wouldn't know why. Um, and so all of those things really interested me. And, um, I took a class, uh, I think it was, in 11th grade, I took AP psychology and there was a chapter on the brain, the human brain. And I, it was the first time I encountered neuroscience in that way. And I just loved it. I mean, I loved it. And it was funny because I took that class with two of my best friends and they hated that portion. They're like, oh, you know, the parts of the brain, this is so boring. <laughs> and I, I just loved it. Um, and I guess I knew at that moment, you know, I was like, oh, I really, and it's funny because I wasn't science was my worst subject. <laughs> I was much better at English and writing and I love literature and I thought I was going to go down that road. Um, but something about that um, chapter in that class really uh, sparked an interest. And I thought, um, you know, it's probably more practical to do science. Um, and so that's how I ended up pursuing it in, um, in undergraduate and then graduate um, studies. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And you say also in your book that the brain is a storyteller and it's not always based in truth uh, because of the left brain interpreter. Can you say more about this and uh, the split, split brain experiment that you talk about in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I, I talk about this in the book, but of all of the scientists, um, I feel like neuroscientists are really um, even more skeptical than other others because we understand how the brain works and the brain. Yeah. I say it's a storyteller in the book and um, because that's kind of how we think of it. Like the brain takes data points um, that it receives through our senses and our experiences. And then it naturally is inclined to create meaning and create stories, um, you know, and, in scientific materialism, it's believed that there, the, the external world, the physical world has no inherent meaning. It's just when we imbue something with meaning, it comes from our brains creating and constructing meaning. And so our brains are naturally inclined to do this. And you see this in experiments where, 
if you, you know, you show people randomly presented dots, they can find faces, they imbue, um, you know, they kind of construct like stories around, oh, this dot is, you know, interacting with this dot. Like they'll create a whole narrative around it because that's just what our brains are (laughs) inclined to do. Um, And so the split brain um, study was, it's a classic neuroscience um, experiment. Uh, So back in the day, they used to, there's these bundles of neurons that connect your two hemispheres of the brain. You have two different hemispheres, left and right. There's a bundle of neurons that connects them. Um, Back in the day, for various reasons, for they used to cut those bundle of neurons um, in special patients, like patients who had epilepsy um, that couldn't be treated in any other way, they would, they would cut those those wires. Um, they don't do that. They don't do that, um, anymore. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think they do it anymore anyway. Um, yeah. So they used to cut those and then this allowed us to, uh, be able to study the left and right hemisphere separately from each other. And, um, yeah, these experiments just really show how the left and right brain are very, very different from each other. You know, there's a lot of functions that, uh, are represented in both hemispheres, of course, and things that are like motor cortex in both hemispheres, sensory in both. But there are some things that are lateralized is what we call it, meaning it's in one hemisphere or the other. And um, for most people who are right-handed, language is in the left hemisphere. And so when you disconnect the brain, um, the language uh, is not, is you're not able to... So let me give an example of the experiment, the way I discussed it in the book, it'll make more sense. So you take these patients, their, their two hemispheres cannot speak to each other. And, uh, your, your, um, left eye connects to your right hemisphere and your right eye connects to your left. So they cross over. So what they did with these patients is they'll show them, um, a, let's say a picture of a duck, um, to their left eye, which goes to their right hemisphere, which does not have language. And then they'll ask them, okay, what did you see? And they won't be able to verbally express that they've seen a duck. But if you ask them to draw what they've seen, they can draw the duck. Um, and then they don't, you know, it, it's just, they're just not capable of producing the language um, to say it. And then vice versa, if you present, um, you know, to the other, to the other visual hemisphere, it goes to the other hemisphere, um, they'll, they'll be able to tell you verbally, but then they may not be able to draw it. Um, so you see this difference between the two hemispheres and it's really, they actually through a series of these experiments with these kinds of patients, they found all kinds of things that the two hemispheres could have completely different personalities. Um, they just had different preferences. Uh, it was really interesting because you have this idea that there's one cohesive brain, but in actuality, there's it's actually like there's two different two different centers. Um, and the left hemisphere inter- is the one that kind of creates these stories. And so they discovered that in the experiments, like they would ask them, um, so they would show them something that their right hemisphere would process, like a fearful image, and it would it, it might those, you know, kinds of images are naturally make us nervous or make us feel uncomfortable. They evoke emotions in our body. You can start sweating. Um, and when they would ask the participants, you know, um, how do you feel? They would be able to say, you know, I don't feel well, I feel uncomfortable. Um, but they couldn't say why, because their left hemisphere didn't have access to that information to be able to verbally express why they just knew that their body didn't feel good. And so then they would start to create stories. They, instead of saying, I don't know why I don't feel well, which would have been the correct answer. Um, they would, they would make up a story like, I must not like 
um, the experimenter who was in here earlier, you know, or wow. yeah, they would pick <laughs> up something. Um, these stories would just come out of them. And the, you know, it was a really, it's a really remarkable phenomenon. So instead of just saying, I don't know, the brain's default is actually to find a story, create a story, um, and always have an answer. It, it likes to have an explanation always. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, that's so powerful because I think a lot of times people are prone to telling them themselves stories mm-hmm. of a certain quality, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's probably also, you know, led by your social circle and what you're paying attention to. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Everything, everything, your entire um, experience, your fears, the things that have happened to you, the way that you think, which is a product of sometimes your genetics, but a lot of times your cultural conditioning or your, you know, the way, the, the way you were raised, um, the way you were taught, all of that affects <laughs> what you perceive and the narrative that you create. Mm, wow. Oh, fascinating. And so um, what about the work of, I want to dive into uh, a topic that I think, you know, for me personally, I also, um, when I moved to San Francisco eight years ago or so, I think I was pretty much an atheist um, or agnostic and kind of had no access to my spiritual life and also no understanding of the idea of past lives or past life regression or any of that world. And have since, you know, obviously also read um, Brian Weiss's Many Lives, Many Masters and have listened to a lot of the work of Laurel and Jackson. And so I'm really curious, you know, how did that work of past lives influence you and maybe you can kind of cue us up and and talk to us about that kind of transition from moving into more neuroscience and then kind of opening up to spirituality. Yeah, absolutely. So um I'm yeah, I'm glad you asked the neuroscience question because that's the kind of training that I was coming from um is understanding that our brains are the biggest liars to ourselves. They lie to us, our our senses and our the way our brains construct stories around what our senses perceive um, are, you know, they really teach you are not to be trusted because they find meaning where there is no meaning and they are coincidence detectors. So they search for coincidences in your environment. But um, so with that, you know, when I finished grad school, I was um, completely, I think I was a little more, you know, um, I don't know if you, I don't know what word I would use. I, I'm just going to use the word mystical, but I don't, I was not, I really, you wouldn't, you wouldn't consider me mystical, but before grad school, I was definitely more open to the idea of there being meaning. Um, but by the time I finished grad school, um, that was beaten out of me. So <laughs> I was definitely, um, coming from a place of none of that stuff is true. Um, and we know it for a fact because we know how the brain works. So then, what happened was I had a, you know, personal crisis and, um, I, in my, the way I stumbled across, um, Laurel and Jackson and Brian Weiss's work was actually through, uh, it's through this personal crisis, essentially, um, in my family, we have, my mother can, and my grandmother, um, can read, uh, Armenian um, coffee grounds. It's kind of like tea leaf reading, which is used really derogatorily in our culture now, but um, <laughs> they would use it for divination purposes. Um, and they were both really good. But of course, I never um, paid attention to that or 
I thought, oh, you know, it's just cultural entertainment, whatever. Um, but anyway, through through a series of events, I just, you know, over the years came to realize that my mom could see these crazy things in the cup that there's no way that she could know from my life, you know, things that were just private. I mean, things that I would just think in my head, but that were meaningful to me would, would show up. And, and so over the years, um, I just kept that in my mind separate, um, from, my science. So I had this, you know, cognitive dissonance of like, oh, well, whatever. I'm just not going to think about that too much. It is really weird. It's just, but, and I believed it because it was too um, accurate to not believe, but I didn't bother to reconcile it with my science. But anyway, I hit this point in my life where um, I needed to understand um, the divination, like how it worked or how it didn't work. And I really wanted to understand fate and destiny. Um, and so I got interested in, in people like psychic mediums who claim to <laughs> be able to access information that the rest of us can't. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I mostly was interested in that, but through that, I came to understand that many of them, um, talked about karma and reincarnation and soul groups. And I had never been exposed to that kind of, um, spiritual framework. I mean, you know, in just in the popular culture, I was vaguely aware of what reincarnation was, but, and karma sort of, but, um, I'd never, you know, heard anyone explain the framework. And so through that, interest. I got exposed to the framework and, um, and then I kept encountering it, uh, multiple times. So like the, I would go to an intuitive or a psychic medium and they would explain, you know, something in my life as, oh, this was a karmic, you know, um, situation. And I would just brush it off. Like, okay, whatever. I don't believe in that. So, uh, what's actually happening, you know, I would just kind of ignore it, but then it kept coming up and I heard, I listened to Chelsea Handler's podcast. Um, I think it was called life will be the death of me. It was based on her book that she had written at the time. And she had Laurel and Jackson on, and then she started talking about the spiritual framework. And I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. <laughs> so I paid attention because I had heard it before. And then on the podcast, they mentioned Brian Weiss's book and I ordered it, not knowing what the book was even about. I thought they just said, Oh, this is the book. Everyone should read it. It's about a psychiatrist and his patient. And I was like, Oh, case study. Cool. So I ordered it and it arrived and I, I like didn't know what I was reading. And it was really, um, it was just kind of funny thinking back on it because I was still very uh, into my scientific materialism. Um, and so I was like, what am I reading? Like I didn't, I couldn't understand what I was even reading. Like, what does this even mean? Um, and the, you know, the, the story is that he's, he's a psychiatrist, a really well-trained one. He's an atheist. He was an atheist. He wasn't familiar with this stuff. And one of his patients starts spontaneously describing past lives in their hypnotic regression sessions. And, um, and that actually, heals her, which is what interested me um, a lot. And then also that in, in those sessions with the patient, again, it's like very similar spiritual framework was described of like master spirits and um, reincarnation and karma and lessons and all this stuff. And so this was like the third time I was encountering it or like from a third, a different type of source. But this time it was a, you know, psychiatrist who went to like Columbia and Yale, basically an atheist. Like I wasn't an, I was never an atheist. I was always an agnostic, but, um, 
you know, somebody that I identified with, um, not that I'm that, not that I'm that smart, but just like somebody who had more of a scientific mind, you know? Um, and so I, I just got interested in it and I thought that that's when I decided to, to really dig in, uh, because up to then it had just been casual, you know, uh, I kind of left it up to fate, I guess, like, oh, I'm just here, here and there encountering this story. But after reading Brian Weiss's book, I was just so, um, I could, you know, interested um, because by the end of his book, he believes it, you know? Right. And so I was like, how could he believe it? Well, how, how, like, how could he? And so I had to find out. So I read all his books and then I didn't want to, you know, just read one person's perspective because it could be a, an anomaly, you know? Um, so then I dug into other researchers or other, um, past life regressionists like Michael Newton and, um, Roger Wolger and, um, some of the ones who had more academic, like they would take the regression and tie it in with like Carl Jung's theories. So then I got interested in psychology, but anyway, all of them said the same thing and, and all of them said it worked like in healing patients, which I've always been interested, uh, obviously as a neuroscientist in mental health and, um, actually in graduate school, I had a focus on it and, you know, kind of how we have no, no solutions for mental health. It's, it's, you know, we, we are nowhere near understanding uh, how mental illness comes from the brain. We have no idea. So to me, you know, it was remarkable. It had remarkable healing potential. So I was just interested in it for that purpose alone. And then also, you know, it was, I was interested in the spiritual framework because I was like, damn, what if it's true? <laughs> um, like, or, how, or if it's not true, how, can these be, why is this like, why are these spontaneous memories arising from, you know, in these hypnotic regression sessions? I mean, it's an odd phenomenon. And I, scientifically, I just wanted to know, um, is this common? Do they tell other stories? Do they ever tell the story of Christianity? <laughs> Do they ever, right, right. You know what I mean, like, why is this the story? Um, and so I just kind of got curious and I was at a, you know, crisis point in life. So I guess I was open to it because, um, I thought, well, this has interesting implications for my life and everyone's lives. Um, if it's true. And so I just kind of, that's how I opened up to the idea. And I just took a curious approach, you know, I mean, a real, the, the real energy of science or the real purpose of it is, should be curiosity. Um, you know, Right. Rather than like a definitive kind of conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so Muna, you spent uh, time trying to understand the concept of thoughts becoming reality and then abandon it. And then um, can you tell us like how this was a catalyst for your later investigations? I'm really, really interested in this concept, right? Like our thoughts, do they actually have weight and and how do they manifest in our life? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is something I still think about a lot. I'm, I, and I'm, um, I, unfortunately that I don't know, <laughs> then the jury's still out for me, but I'll tell you why. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in college, like I said, in college, when I was, before I went to graduate school in college, I was very, very interested in coincidences and, um, um, you know, just like the random circumstances in people's lives. And it was because I had a lot of synchronicities happen. And I, I wish I could remember, because <laughs> I, I, I've actually had people ask me this, reading that part in the book, and I wish I could remember <laughs> like really good ones. But 
um, I can't give great examples. I just know it happened all the time and I have a diary. I should probably go look back and I would write them all in the diary because I would be so amazed, but it would be something I'm, I'm a Pisces. <laughs> so I'm a dreamer. Okay. I fantasize. I daydream. Um, I think I read, I reflect. Um, and so in college, um, you know, a lot of the things I would get these kind of like, you know, fan fantasy, playful ideas in my head about whatever, I don't know, like, you know, my professor saying that my test was like the, I don't know, the, the best answer he's seen <laughs> in 30 years of teaching or, you know, it's ridiculous things like that. Or, um, or, you know, I can't even remember stupid examples from college, but I would get these little like ideas in my head that I would you know, kind of repetitive fantasies that were just kind of fun. It was not serious at all. It was very, very just fun, playful. That's my nature to daydream. Um, and then they would happen <laughs> like exactly as I um, pictured it. And I remember just being so taken aback by it, you know, like that's why I was so interested in it and I would document them. Um, I really should go back and read them. Um, and so I, you know, uh, uh, now with my scientist mind, I would be like, I would counter that with, oh, they must have been banal everyday things that would have happened anyway. They must have been things that happened to you before that you forgot that, you know what I mean? Like I can come up with all of the, <laughs> and, and I did that. Um, and no matter how much you, you um, try to rationalize it away or explain it away, the feeling <laughs> of that synchronous moment is so intense and meaningful for you um, that there just becomes this, um, this yeah, this discrepancy um, between the two things, a rational mind and this experience. And uh, even in graduate school, you know, in the beginning, by the end, I was too, oh my gosh, honestly, it's hard, you know, you're so tired at the, by the end and you just want to graduate. But in the beginning, I had more time to like, think about these things and reflect. And as I learned statistics, I remember trying to apply stats to it and it only made it more incredible for me in those early years, you know, like, cause I would really think like, well, what are the, have I ever thought about this before? Um, you know, have, I would just try to debunk it in that way. And it, it wasn't, um, always easy to do that. And so, so I, so I wondered, okay, are my thoughts. And then that was actually right around the time the secret came out. Um, and it was, you know, everywhere in popular culture. So I, that's, it kind of was like a, just a reinforcement. I was thinking about it, but yeah, as I went through grad school, I guess I kind of just didn't believe it anymore. Um, but I still think about it and, you know, I always wonder are your thoughts becoming reality or is your future coming back to your mind? <laughs> mm, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I definitely believe it's something. I, I don't anymore believe that it's nothing, um, that it's, you know, I don't rationalize it away anymore. I definitely think it's something like that either, or I just don't know which one it is. <laughs> so I, um, but that doesn't mean I don't do it. You know, like I let my fan, my imagination run wild because why not? <laughs> right. Right. So, um, what about, you know, you've done so many different types of interviews with mediums and psychics and, you know, and also behavioral health practitioners and scientists. What are some of the most fascinating takeaways you learned from those interviews? I mean, maybe you could just 
capture a couple themes for us? And yeah. Some of the most surprising things um, from my scientist colleagues were that they were really, really open to this kind of stuff. I mean, all of our conversations were had in in private and confidentially. So I, you know, I I know for a fact, some of them would not (laughs) discuss these topics as openly in public as they did with me in private. But um, they told me a person, you know, some of them that I didn't even put in the book, but um, told me crazy stories uh, from their life, like spiritual stories, um, paranormal stories, and that they, you know, sometimes, I guess I was surprised just at how um, open they were to it because we have this, I guess, don't, just don't speak about these things, culture and science. And so I never knew um, what what any of my colleagues thought. So I, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that they were at least internally and privately more open than, than um, I thought they were. And from the psychics and yeah, the intuitives, um, they're just interesting. I mean, one thing I, I loved was, was speaking to them and learning their, their personal stories, because a lot of times it, you know, it was like, they didn't, you might think they come from families, right? Oh, maybe they grew up in a spiritual family. That's how they learn to believe if you're a skeptic, that's how they learn to believe they have these powers, um, that kind of thing. But actually many of them were like, oh no, my family doesn't believe me. They still don't believe I have these powers. Um, Mm. they're Jewish, um, you know, or they're, they're atheists or (laughs) it was wild. Like they genuinely didn't come from backgrounds like that. It, it, the story was always as a child, I could see spirits. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I learned to keep it to myself after a while because I realized not everyone could. And, you know, eventually I developed my talent. You know, it was kind of that kind of thing. And that really surprised me because I thought um, those interviews happened early on when I was still not a believer in anything, but I was just curious. And I um, was expecting them to say, you know, which I shouldn't have been expecting, but I, I guess my conditioning was that I was expecting them to say, you know, I, I grew up in a family like this, or it runs in my family or something. And it wasn't mm-hmm. the case for them. And that made it even more interesting to me. <laughs> like, what do you mean? So, it, so I thought that was really, to me, that, that just, um, it was more of a mystery, you know, it made it more of a mystery to me. Wow, fascinating! Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting, you know, how some people are are gifted that, in that way, and and how others are not, and and how some of those kind of dormant um, skill sets get woken up later in life. Yeah. Uh, so, what about this uh, quantum field theory for those who don't know? Um, and what do you think is is uh, the science community missing when it comes to the world of spirituality? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm not a physicist, so my but my understanding of quantum field theory is that it's trying to in um, in physics there's a um, discrepancy between like we can't reconcile two different kinds of physics, which is you know the um, Einstein's kind of uh, Einstein Newtonian like macro physics with quantum physics. There's no unifying theory between the two. So um, it's my understanding that quantum field theory is in some ways not trying to be like a a grand unifying theory, but it does um, 
kind of bridge uh, special relativity with with quantum um, physics. So that's I mentioned that in the book just because there was this this um, paper that was published about you know a theory about how our brains are filters for consciousness that consciousness is actually external to us and they go through this you know <laughs> they use literature from neuroscience and from quantum field theory um, and all these different fields philosophy <laughs> to make this model for how consciousness is actually external and we interact with it and we um you know, derive information from it. And it's not that I believe that or don't believe it. I just thought it was really fascinating that I found it in a scientific journal and they use cosmopsychism as the, I think, philosophical groundwork. And I, I was just interested in it, but I, um, I've heard, uh, you know, I've read so many different theories, um, and my mind like <laughs> spins <laughs> all the possibilities. And I mean, you know, I, I think, um, I, I mean, I believe that consciousness is fundamental now, um, from everything I've, I've read. So, or something more basic than matter is, is fundamental. And so, um, I think I was actually just listening. I'm not the only one who thinks this, um, there's a professor at UC Irvine. He's a neuroscientist as well. His name is Don. Don Hoffman. Um, and he, you know, he talks about this. He has a whole theory about how um, he's done experiments showing that statistically, um, probability wise, humans were not designed to detect reality as, as it is. Like the truth, if we're looking for true, what is the true reality? We, with our senses and our, you know, our makeup are not designed to, um, detect it as it is. So everything we see is a representation, um, of what's actually going on. Wow. That, and the representation is designed to help us, um, mate and procreate. And, and that's the only purpose, but, um, you know, so in his, in his, his theory is there's, there's not even a brain to receive consciousness. It's, it's all one thing <laughs> or like you're asking the wrong question. And so I think like, I love that. And, um, he has, you know, pulls from other physics, um, current physicists that are working on similar theories and other philosophers. And so I think what's missing really is that science is trying to work alone. Um, and I talk about this in the book. The problem is that if you only want to answer the question of why are we here? What's reality? What is consciousness? What is spirituality through the lens of just neuroscience? You can easily do that with what I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, right? About our, our limited senses and our storytelling, but, but that's not enough to understand reality. And the problem is that science, each science field stays in its own lane, which is how we are trained. We're such experts, we can't comment on any other field. And that is a huge problem because, um, because yeah, neuroscientists, just like I would, I would be like, no, well, we know how the brain works. So therefore I know how reality works, but that's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. I don't know that, you know, the history of worldviews, the, um, the possibilities from physics, new theories from philosophy, um, what's or spirit and spirituality, because spirituality is not, um, it is a part of human experience. It's coming from our minds. It's such a huge part, right? It's such a huge part. Um, 
in my book, I talk about the percentage of people, I think in America, it's like 95% of people believe in a higher power or, you know, some sort of spirituality. And even scientists, like about 50 of that, 50% of them do too. Um, so it's not nothing, you know, even though science likes to brush it to the side and pretend like it is, it's not, it's a huge part of the human experience. And by ignoring it, um, we are never going to get to the answers we seek, you know? So the problem is the fields are too narrow and we're just not incorporating other types of knowledge. We're never going to get to, um, you know, a grand unifying theory of anything that way. Wow. So, oh my gosh, so many more questions. Um, I so appreciate your point of view and I, I so appreciate, you know, as a neuroscientist that you have an open mind, uh, you know, to, to these <laughs> things, because I think what's so frustrating to me is just the level of arrogance all around with people who have like definitive POVs and it's just like, well, science has also been wrong, yes. you know, every couple hundred years. So it just it seems ridiculous to be, you know, arrogant about anything. Yeah. Actually, if I just say one, um, one thing I, I learned, which was very humbling and, um, I'm gonna, as I <laughs> continue having these conversations, I will definitely bring this up with other scientists, but as a reminder that this worldview, scientific materialism, rationalist thought, um, you know, all of it came out about from the enlightenment and scientific revolution, which is only a couple hundred years ago, but for the rest of the time humanity has existed, the other philosophies and religions and frameworks for spirituality, um, we're not, did not look anything like what we have today there, you know, there has always been meaning imbued or symbolism or mysticism. Um, we are a very rare exception in the last hundred years, last couple hundred years, um, that we have this viewpoint. And I think there's, I honestly believe we're going to abandon it eventually, but, um, it'll take a while, but I think it will come to see, it doesn't serve, it doesn't fit humanity because you have to cut so much of the human experience out, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm mean, actually so, you know, curious, you know, what do you think the future of humanity is? I mean, what do you think the purpose of our, our lives are? You can answer either one of those questions. I know they're pretty uh, loaded. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think yesterday I wouldn't have had an answer. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but I like, you know, I mean, one thing I've come to through all of this is that whatever framework or narrative or story works for you is fine. I don't think there is a <laughs> final truth personally. Um, I mean, I think I'm sure there is, I just don't know that we'll know what it is. Um, so, you know, for me for a while and maybe still that, I, that framework I learned about karma and reincarnation and all that, um, was really interesting to me and it works for me. And, um, I, you know, I, I like that one, but then today <laughs> I was listening to, um, which is probably it's similar. It's just less spiritual or, may, or maybe it's not. Um, I was listening to Don Hoffman talk and that neuroscientist I mentioned earlier. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, consciousness could be trying itself out in different forms, which is just another way of looking at that spiritual framework. But but you see how, when I use these words, like it's a different feeling or a different idea, a different concept, but, um, that's not as imbued with, 
you know, um, what in my mind anyways, classic spirituality, but, um, you know, I, maybe it's that maybe it's, it is, we're all one consciousness <laughs> and it breaks off into pieces and tries out different perspectives, um, for what purpose, maybe evolution. I don't know, but I do think that whatever, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I guess I do lean towards something, something like that, um, with the things I've read and the data I have in my mind as of this moment, Okay, but it could change because it constantly changes. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're like in an evolving kind of space, um, of inquiry in, in this world. And, uh, so when I'm also curious, you know, what has surprised you the most on this journey? Um, actually kind of what we were just talking about the, um, actually two things I'll say, okay. One is the movement, um, in my mind of a pillar of knowing, you know, um, of thinking, you know, what, you know, is enough. Um, I came from a place of, of that thinking that what I knew was all (laughs) there was to know. I mean, I knew I, I didn't know a lot of things, but my worldview, scientific materialism, I was certain that that was, that was the truth. And as I've, you know, broken my mind open over the last three years with exposure to spiritual texts, but other philosophies, you know, physics, um, uh, all these other psychology, my goodness, um, all these other fields of uh, knowledge um, that there's like, you know, you, in my mind, I always imagine like, I have a pillar, I like put it in the, in the ground. I'm like, this is the truth. This is knowledge. This is my foundation. And I have to keep <laughs> moving that and has really surprised me how much I've had to do that. <laughs> um, and so it's at times I feel, I mean, at first this was the most disorienting part. This is what I caused my identity crisis. I constantly felt like I was in turmoil and I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what reality was. <laughs> I didn't know if I could ever know anything again. Um, so it was very, you know, upsetting and just, unsettling. Um, and then slowly over time, I became comfortable with that and, um, you know, became comfortable with uncertainty. And I, maybe you're hearing that hopefully, um, with everything I'm saying is it's like, this is what I know with the data I have now, but I've done this enough times to know that I don't have all the data yet. And so I'm, my thinking is going to evolve, um, again, and um, just being okay with that. And, but that has been surprising to me, you know, um, and uh, transformational uh, in ways I could not have imagined. Um, so that, and then the other thing that's just more of a, um, like an old me, new me thing is how damn comforting spirituality is. <laughs> um, yeah, I never... I guess I never thought needed it before or, and definitely didn't believe or understand how or why people turned to it. Um, and so it has been very surprising to me how, um, how much it's, um, transformed my life and for the better. 
<laughs> wow. Amazing. Amazing. And what are some uh, books and resources that have inspired you? Like maybe you could share, I, we obviously talked about Brian Weiss's Many Lives, Many Masters, but are there any others that uh, you can recommend to our the folks listening? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're, um, if you have any scientists listening, <laughs> um, for scientists, I always recommend Jeff Kripal's work. He's the chair of, um, uh, philosophy and religious studies at Rice University. He's written a book. He's written many excellent books, but one of them is called The Flip, and it's about scientists who have flipped. And it gives a lot of examples and a lot of my um, thinking, um, or like, uh, I feel like I got, I need, you know, you always feel like you need permission um, sometimes to change your worldview or identity. I felt that way, and I feel like I got it from Jeffrey Kripal's work. Um, and so I always recommend his book. Um, and again, another another one for, I guess, actually in my book in the back, I have a, a bunch of recommendations, just an index on different topics. Um, I break it down by topic just because I hit so many different ones. Um, but I, for, for past life regression and tying it into psychology, I loved Roger Wolger's book, Other Lives, Other Selves, I think it's called. I loved that one. It's a little more academic, but um, I, I, like, I wanted to know the, the, the nitty gritty of how this ties into, you know, Jungian um, psychology. Um, another one that, oh, has also informed my thinking, it's called Demonic Reality. Um, which is definitely more of a, it's just an interesting read. <laughs> it kind of tries to tie together, um, you know, uh, par um, paranormal phenomena, I think with um, UFO things and like crop circles. And it, it I like it because it talks about Jungian psychology as well, about this idea of we think of, you know, ourselves as separate you know, inside versus outside self versus other, but it talks about these things, these odd things that happen to us and how they are evidence that we are more intimately connected than we believe with our, right. That there, there probably is no distinction between myself and, and the environment, um, and how those things kind of shake you. Um, wow. yeah. So I thought that was an interesting book. Amazing. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Fascinating. So I'll check those out. Uh, so Mona, uh, where can people find you? Are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, your work, or should we just point them to your uh, latest book? Yeah, I have a website. Um, it's uh, monasobhaniphd.com. And I actually write a psychedelics newsletter and you can sign up for it if you're interested, just because I got into psychedelics through all this work um, through the website for that. And I think there's links to the book on the website as well. And um, I'm on social, but I don't use it that much. So the website's probably the best place. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. So we'll also include that in the show notes. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Mona. This was enlightening and I have a lot of, uh, a lot more questions <laughs> coming out of this. <gasps> it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful. So for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again. <laughs>